This series that we're in right now is called I Am. Do me a favor. You're sitting next to someone on your left and right. I just want you to finish this sentence. I want you to look at them and I want you to say, I am dot, dot, dot. And fill in three things. Tell them three things about you. I am a dad. I am Jared. I am tired. I am... And I'm watching. And if you don't say something, you're in trouble. And husbands, this is not a good time to say, I am sorry. Because usually when you say, I am sorry, your wife's going to say, and you're sorry for what? And then you're going to have to try to figure that out real quick. And you don't have that much time. So I am. I am. Who are you? You know, that's a really good question. Who are you? That's a question that a lot of people ask Jesus at a lot of different times in his ministry. Who is this guy? I mean, they would see him perform miracles. They would see him do things. They would hear him teach. And all these people around him were looking at him and saying, Who who are you that speaks with this kind of authority? Who are you who's able to to make the dead rise and the lame walk and and the deaf speak and the blind see and who can multiply fish and loaves and feed thousands of people with just a few? Who in the world are you? So Jesus would often say, I am. And he would say things like, I am, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And you are the branches. And with all of these I am statements, he would tell us some things about how he has hope and, and he cares and, and we need to learn his voice and lean closely into him. And, and there's no other way to the Father but through him. And we need to hold on to him when life gets tough. And, and last week we talked about this idea, I am the vine. And that means that, that if he's the vine and we're the branches and we're supposed to bear a whole lot of fruit, then our fruitfulness matters to God. And, and, and Jesus wants us to respond to his calling and take a step for him. And here's the thing about all of these I am statements that Jesus said. They often make people feel really uncomfortable. He would say things and they were like, what? What are you, who, who do you think you are to say that you're the, that you're the bread of life? And that there's only satisfaction found in you, or you're the light of the world. Who do you think you are to be able to say these things? And there are a lot of people who would get a little bit riled up about this and didn't like what Jesus had to say. And the passage that we're looking at today took that even a step further. If you think the Pharisees and Sadducees got mad and riled up with what Jesus was teaching, you wait till you hear how they respond to what Jesus is going to say today when he says, I am. So take your notes, John chapter 8, verse 49 through 59, and let's listen to what Jesus says. Let me give you a little background. The Jesus and Pharisees and Sadducees are really going at it right here. And basically, you know, he's just calling them on the carpet. He's just saying, you don't even know, you don't even know our father. You're not even a descendant of Abraham. Because if you did, you would know who I am. And since you don't know who I am, you don't know who God is. And they don't like this. And so basically at the end of this conversation, they look at Jesus and they just say, you're possessed with a demon. You are demon-possessed. You and, and there's only one thing that we do with demon-possessed people. And so this is how Jesus responds. And he says, no, Jesus said, I have no demon in me. For 
I honor my Father and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, now we know you're possessed by a demon. Because even Abraham, who's the father of their, who Israel considered the father of their faith, said even Abraham and the prophets died. I mean, if they are that close with God and they're the founder of our faith and they died, but you say anyone who teaches, who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. And so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, If I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say He is our God, but you don't even know Him. I know Him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know Him and obey Him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. And the people said, you aren't even 50 years old. They're being a little condescending here because Abraham actually lived almost 1,800 years ago. And they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, you're not even 50. How could you know Abraham who existed 1,800 years ago, right? How can you even say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, say these next two words with me, I am. And at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. He says, I am. This New Testament term that he's saying here is actually the word Yahweh. And in Hebrew, it's the word Ahayah. And and Jesus is saying that I am the sacred name of God. Now, you don't understand, this name came from Exodus chapter 14. Do you guys remember the story of Moses and the Israelites and freeing the people um, from from slavery, right? Um, Moses flees Egypt and he leaves, you know, the Israelites in captivity. And and God, he he goes off into the desert to make his life. And and God hears the cry of the people who are suffering in um, in Egypt. And and he goes to Moses in the form of a burning bush. You guys remember this story, right? And inside this burning bush, you know, he's basically looking at Moses and saying, Hey, I'm sending you back to Egypt. And uh, and Moses is like, "I'm, I'm not going back there. I'm wanted for murder there. I'm not, I'm not going back. You've got the wrong guy. I don't talk in front of people. I'm slow of speech. You, you've got the wrong fella. And, Mo, and, and God looks at Moses and he says, No, I'm sending you back and you're going to perform miraculous things in my name and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go and he's going to do it. And then Moses looks at God and he says, I guess he looked at God and he says, But who am I supposed to say who sent me? When they ask, by what authority are you doing this? Who told you to come? When Pharaoh asked, when the, the, the people of Israel asked, who sent me? He says, tell them, I am. I am sent me. I am is, is that same word in Greek. It's Yahweh, Ahayah. It's God in heaven that they worshipped. It's, it's, it's God that was in the sky that performed those miracles of, of, of bringing the people out of Egypt who parted the Red Sea, who knocked down Jericho's wall, who, who brought the manna and the quail and, and caused water to come from a rock. That God that did all these amazing things, that God... 
who you think is existing only in heaven is here now. You're dealing with me. I am is here. And that's why they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him because I am was a sacred name. You didn't even speak that name. In the Old Testament, rabbis, would, when they would read the scrolls and the teachings, they would, instead of saying the name Yahweh or saying the name Ahayah, preach it, son, um, they would say, may his name be praised. They wouldn't even say the name. They'd say, may his name be praised. Or they would say, and the strong right hand of Israel did this. They didn't speak his name. It was blasphemy to speak his name. And they, and they would, it was sacred. It was revered. In the 1940s, um, some archaeologists discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. George, I think you're the only one that were alive in this room in the 1940s. I think you were probably 13 or 14, maybe. Marie, were you were you in the 19 born in the 1940s? Okay, so there's a few, there's a few. Marie also. So in the 40s, if you guys, oh, well, there you go. Sorry, well, you were in the first service. You didn't say anything. <laughs> you got to be proud of that. Are you kidding me? In the 1940s, they discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in these Dead Sea Scrolls, it was the greatest find of biblical literature because it basically confirmed all the things that were written. And, and when, when those scribes were, were, were transferring those words into the Dead Sea Scrolls, they took such care that, that you know how when, when, you're, when you're copying something from one thing to another, you may read a whole sentence, right, and then you'll go over here and you'll type that sentence and you'll look back when you were in high school and you were plagiarizing, you know, cliff notes or whatever, and you would look over here and you would read it and then you would type the whole sentence. Nobody did. It was only me. Lord, I'm confessing here in front of everyone. But, but, but they took such great care that they wouldn't copy full sentences. They would copy one character at a time. One letter, one note, one mark, one whatever. That, that they were just so careful in transcribing from one thing to the other because it was so sacred. But when they got to the name of God, the name of God, Yahweh, Ahayah, was so sacred that they would put dash, 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 four dashes, because they, they didn't even feel that they were worthy to write the name of God. And here Jesus is saying, that God, Yahweh, He's here. And it's me. And before Abraham was born, I am. I am. The name of Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves us. He says that Jehovah, that Yahweh, that man is here. Rabbis would teach that there is no, there's no forgiveness for using the name of God in vain. Think about our culture. We've taken the name of God and we've turned it into a curse word. I don't have to repeat those words. You know the phrases. Not only have we turned it into a curse word, but we've tur- turned it into just a byword that we just throw out there from time. Oh my... We see something, a great basketball play. Oh my. It's just a byword. So casual the way we speak it. But the Jews, they weren't playing around here. They think Jesus has lost his ever-loving mind. And there's only one thing that we do for someone who loses their mind, and it wasn't putting them in a mental institution. It was beating them with rocks. 
It was killing them if you used the name's Lord, the name of the Lord in vain. Jesus is saying, I am him. That God that you worship, that God that did those great things, I am. I am. Have you ever met someone that you've seen in TV on in person? Like a couple of weeks ago, um, I went to uh, with Josh to the Texas Rangers in, in surprise. So we got there at eight o'clock in the morning, and the game started at one. And we were watching them do batting practice and throw and run laps and do drills and all the the four diamonds they were using. There was like this middle part where all the fans could stand, and when they were going back and forth through stuff, you could walk up to them, "Hey, can I have your picture? Can I get your autograph?" And I have a little ball that I have maybe a dozen names on, and and uh, have pictures my arm around Cole Hamill's like, ah, what's up? And, and, and it was like such, a, I was like in awe. At the very beginning, I was like, oh, this is so great. I was like a little kid, right? And then as the day wore on, you, you kind of lose that just a little bit. And you realize that they're just normal people. Like Ruby and Odor, the second baseman, is like five foot six. He's just a little guy. And you're just like, he's such a big character on TV. But, but now I've met him in person. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people in this moment. This God that you have worshipped and looked at and revered and honored and sacrificed for, He is here in flesh. I am God eternal. What does that mean? Just three thoughts. First thing is this. Is that Jesus, like I've said, is declaring Himself as God. As a youth pastor, I would often ask my kids... um, have you ever accepted him in your heart? Have you ever accepted Jesus in your heart? One of my professors challenged me on that one time. And he said, he said what, what are you asking them to? Accepted him as what? A savior? It's good. He is our Savior. It's true. Our friend? Yeah, Jesus says he is our friend. He's closer than a brother. Um, and, and when I was in, um, a youth pastor early on, they had these t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And like a really cool picture look of Jesus. And, you know, that's the way people saw Jesus as, as their homeboy. And, 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 and what Jesus is saying here is that, no, 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 no. Yeah, Jesus is your friend. Yeah, Jesus is your Savior. Yes, Jesus is closer than a brother. But he is so much more than that. He is Yahweh. He is Lord. He is boss. He is rulers. And here's the thing is that that put his followers in a very dangerous situation. If they were to declare that Jesus is Lord, that was putting a ransom on their head, not just by the Jewish leaders, but by Rome itself. Because there was only one person in that day other than Jesus that said that he was Lord, and his name was Caesar. And if you had any other Lord other than Caesar, and you lived in Caesar, if your allegiance was anywhere else, you were killed. Every year, they would have a festival where where every single person in his kingdom had to go to an altar and burn an incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't do it, they were killed. Because you were allowed no other allegiance other than Caesar. And Jesus is saying, I'm God. I am Lord. I'm Lord. And if He is anything other than Lord of your life, He's nothing. He is Savior. 
Because he is Lord. Because he is the King of Kings. Because he is Lord. Because he is the master of this universe. Because he is those things he's allowed and in the, the Savior of our souls. Have you ever heard of a book in the New Testament called Romans? The book of Romans is written to Christians in what city? Rome. And that's why it's called Romans. Now listen to what Paul writes to these people who are living in the very capital of, of, of Rome. Listen to what he says. It's in your notes. Romans 10, 9-13. He says, If you openly declare that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Now we think about that verse today. We're like, well that's no big deal. I openly declare that Jesus is Lord. But to those people at that time, that was a death sentence. To say Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar isn't. And if Caesar isn't Lord, you can die. There's no other allegiance but to Caesar. Verse 11, as the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew, Gentile, they're the same in this respect. They have the same what? Lord, who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the what? Lord will be saved. Some of us say, Jesus saved me but I still want to run the show. Save me, Jesus, but I still want to be boss. And I want to say, not if he's God. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, then you don't get to run the show. He does. There's research done by Smith and Deaton um, to adults and teens who are living in America, uh, Americans, and, and they, they were asking, how do they see God? And the response was, from all their research, is that, that Americans believe in something called therapeutic deism. And what I mean by that is, is that deism is, is the idea that there is a God, that he exists, that he watches over us from a distance. That's deism. But the therapeutic side of it is saying that, that, that Jesus isn't really involved that much in our life, or God isn't, unless we really need on him. And that we can count on him to help us with our problems, um, and his ultimate goal is for us to be happy. And that's just simply not true on many accounts. Jesus is not saying that I am just some far off God. He's saying I am here. I'm here. I am Lord. I'm Yahweh. I am present. And he's saying my goal is not your happiness. My goal is your holiness. And I'm not here just to make you... I am here to be Lord of your life. God's goal is not for us to be happy. We have all of eternity to be happy God's goal for our life is for us to be holy, for Him to be Lord of all. Maybe a prayer some of us need to pray today is, Lord, help yourself to me. My life. Jesus, Lord, Yahweh, Ahayah. Help yourself to me. You're King of Universe. My life is wide open to you. Here's a second thought. If Jesus is Lord, then Jesus is here to put things back in place. Look, I'm not a handy guy. Anytime I usually mess with something, I mess it up more than I do help it. And uh, this last week, I decided to try to get my pool in good shape. 
Um, and it was a little bit of a green. Did I tell you guys this a few weeks ago? My pool got a little green. I had a problem with my, uh, my pump. It wasn't circulating the water, and so I didn't put chlorine in it, and, and so it got a little green, and we were going to fix it. We were going to do some other things to it, but, but eventually we, we kind of went in the backyard, and we said, this looks, doesn't, this looks gross. It doesn't even look refreshing. If it doesn't look refreshing, we don't even want to look at it because we're not getting in that thing, right? And so I said, I'm going to fix it. So I decided to go to the, to the store, to the pool shop, and to get a couple bags of shock because bags of shop fi- shock fix everything. And so I grabbed those two bags of shock, and I threw those two bags of shock in my pool, and I turned the pool pump on to try to fix for me, and guess what? My pool did not turn clear. It turned to milk. And I mean, you couldn't even see like two inches into that thing. That bright blue hose that was hooked to my little cleaner guy like disappeared an inch into it. And it was like you could pull, pour out a glass and say, oh, you could put that on your cereal. It was that milky and that disgusting. And so I called a guy, a pool guy, because he knows pools a whole lot better. And he knows what that pool's supposed to look like and how to get it to that thing. And I just said, Travis, what are we going to do? Travis said, well, we got to... There's, that pool's gone. That water is over. There's no saving that water. We got to empty it all out, and we got to put fresh stuff in, because your your pool is just shot. It's just shot. See, here's the thing. I had to go to a guy who knew what that was supposed to look like before it can be fixed and get it to where it's supposed to be. I didn't understand. I didn't know. I had, so I had to go to someone who knew the way it was supposed to be, so that we can get it to that point. And that's who Jesus is saying that he is. He's saying, I am God eternal. John chapter 1. Listen to what John writes. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. What's surprising about that word, word? It's capital W. It's referring to a person. He says, the word was with God, and the word was God. He, the word, existed in the beginning with God. And God created everything through who? Him. And nothing was created except through Him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought life to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Look at the underlying part. So the word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Who are they talking about? Jesus. Saying Jesus was there at the beginning. He saw what it's supposed to look like. And because he knows the way God intended this world to be, it's his mission to get it back to that place. That's what he told his disciples in Luke chapter 4. He was in the temple. He was reading from the scriptures. He says, and this is Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll and handed it back to them. He says, the scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. God in flesh here to to right wrongs and calling his disciples to fulfill his mission to this world, set people free, bring healing to the blind, set captives to make them release, to share the good news to the poor. And he says, that is my kingdom here on this earth. I'm here to set things back in place. This is not what God intended. We look at this world that we live in and don't believe that this is what God wanted it to be like. 
He's saying, you, my disciples, we're returning to God's original glory. That's why when he taught his disciples to pray, he told us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, say it with me, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That is the prayer for God's kingdom on in heaven to be here on earth through Jesus, through his disciples. If he's God eternal, he's here to put things in place. And here's the last thought. If Jesus is I am God eternal, then he is the object of our faith. Jesus is the center. He's the subject. He's the object. And we talk about Jesus. To the Jews, even today, to Jews, Jesus was a prophet. And there are many scriptures and many passages and many scrolls and many teachings of of, of people about Jesus. To Muslims and to Islam, did you know that Jesus was mentioned 187 times in the Quran? He's the subject. He's the object. Even Muslims and, and, and Islam cannot escape this person of Jesus. They see him as a prophet. He is much, much more than that. Jesus is the center of it all. And that's why we talk about him. Here's the problem, though. In church, we have a tendency to talk about a lot of other things than Jesus. We talk about worship, the songs that we like or don't like, or the key that we wish it was or wasn't singing. We, we talk about those things. We talk about ministry, which is good. We talk about religion and theology. I love talking theology with people. And those are all good things to talk about, but what we need to be primarily talking about is Jesus. Our faith gets diverted to all these other objects, all this other stuff about knowledge and works and attendance. The truth is, it's all about Jesus. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 5. He's talking to some Pharisees, religious rulers, and he says, you search in the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to who? Me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. He's saying, you look at the scriptures, they've become an idol to you. But it's all about me. They read it and they never came to Jesus. David in Psalms wrote this in Psalms 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. He says, you don't desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. He's saying, all that stuff, you don't want that. You want me, you want my heart, you want You want me connected with Jesus. Who do we trust in? If it's anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. In college, I did some evangelism training. It was a part of my work as I was studying to be a pastor. They told us, they taught us to ask a question to people. They said, ask them, if they were to die tonight, today, would they go to heaven? And if they say no, then you lead lead them through how they can be assured to go into heaven. But if they say yes, you follow up with this question. So if you were to stand in front of the pearly gates and Peter was to ask you, I don't think this is really going to happen, but this is what they taught us to ask. Why should I let you in? What would be your response? Some people would say, well, because I lived a good life. Why go to church? I've been baptized. But if it's anything other than trusting in the finished work of Jesus, it's wrong. Because that's what's important. Studies in churches have shown that 80% of people answer this question wrong. 80% of Christians say something along the lines of works or 
or I live a moral life, or, or I was raised in the church, or I was, I was born in the church, right? We say those things. But if it's anything other than Jesus, it's wrong. It doesn't matter what it is if it's not Jesus. It won't work. You see, when Jesus becomes our subject, when Jesus becomes our object, when Jesus becomes the point, we kind of go crazy. And I mean that in a good way. We fall in love with Him. We honor Him. We live our life for Him. We praise Him. We trust in Him and Him alone. He is the object of our faith. What is the object of your faith this morning? Or who is the object of your faith? Sarah, would you come back up? Is the object of your faith in the one who says, I am? I am. This morning, I just want you to take time to answer that question. Answer the question, who's the object of my faith? What's the bedrock? Where do I get my handle on life? You know, I lived a pretty good life. I go to church. I serve the church. I do things. I, I'm a moral person. But, but is it Jesus? Is it the great I am? 